thing. We come back to our study in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you would open your Bible and, uh, and turn with me there or turn on your Bible. 1 Timothy 5, beginning in verse 17. In a, an 1876 sermon, Charles Spurgeon said, The motto of all true servants of God must be, We preach Christ and Him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. And so as we read here about honoring elders in the church, especially those who labor in the preaching and teaching, this is recognizing a man who has devoted himself to the declaration of the gospel to the people of God, and even to those of the world who desperately need to hear the gospel in order to be saved. And so we're going to consider what Paul instructs Timothy in here. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy, not just of honor, but even of double honor. And even these closing instructions that Paul has for Timothy in this particular chapter. So if you would please, in honor of the word of the king, would you stand For the reading of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. You may be seated as we pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into this word this morning, I pray that you guide and teach us according to this. Most of this seems like instructions that are specific to a pastor. What would this have to do for us as far as application beyond paying a pastor of the church? What about the call to be pure as Paul instructs Timothy and how good works will be known and even those who do who who do evil works, even those things will be known eventually. What must we glean from this? How do we apply this to our lives? I pray that you give us wisdom as we come to the text, that your spirit illuminates these things to us, that as we have read in previous weeks, we are to pursue godliness. Even these words that we have read here grow that godliness in us that we may be made more like Christ, sanctified for the day of glory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. The discipline of preaching here at Providence Church, even before I came, 
is expository preaching. Now, expository preaching, the definition of expository is right there in the Word. It is to expose. It is exposing what the Word of God says. Another word for this is exegesis, which means to draw out. So our desire is to draw out the intended meaning of a text. We don't practice eisegesis, which means to impose upon. We don't impose our will or our desire upon the, uh, upon the text, but we want to know what the Holy Spirit is communicating through the original author to his original audience, and then what the Holy Spirit would have to communicate to us today from the words that we read. Now, as a church, we don't just practice expository preaching. We practice sequential expository preaching. Well, now I'm throwing out big words. What are we talking about here regarding sequential expository preaching? Well, it's exactly what we've been doing as we've been in this series in 1 Timothy. We start at the beginning of the book of the Bible, and we go verse by verse, word for word, through the whole thing, hearing the whole counsel of God. And this actually puts us in a position to have to deal with topics that we probably would not ordinarily deal with. Like consider last week's sermon. When was the last time you heard a sermon on caring for widows in the church? But because we're sequentially going through 1 Timothy, eventually we're going to get to that section where Paul instructs Timothy to care for the widows of the church. And that's an instruction that doesn't just exist for the first century church, but the Holy Spirit would instruct that responsibility to us now, even in how we are to handle in the household of God. It's as, that's been the theme of this book as we've been reading through it, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So as we continue these things in sequence, we get to this next section where it says... Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now, I find it necessary to have to preface with that so that you know I'm not up here preaching this section, which seems a little bit self-serving. I'm not up here trying to communicate to you, your pastor needs to be paid and you must pay him more than you're giving to him. That's, that's not the purpose here. In fact, you might also have picked up that in this particular section, it also talks about how to discipline your pastor if he needs it. So I think I'm safe from being accused of loading this sermon to benefit myself. Now the third section of these instructions, so you have uh, basically pay your pastor, and then if he needs it, discipline your pastor. The third section does not have to do with honoring or disciplining, but rather summarizes these instructions in counsel specific to Timothy. And then we will try to glean from that also how that relates to us. So once again, our passage today breaks down like this. Number one, in verses 17 to 18, Paul talks about honoring your elders. Number two, in verses 19 to 20, admitting a charge against an elder. And then number three, verses 21 to 25, keep these rules without prejudging. Most of the sermon, the, the bulk of the sermon today is going to be in these first two verses in verses 17 to 18. So likewise, we understand how we are to honor those who labor in preaching and teaching, doing nothing from partiality, for all must consider our conduct in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who has given himself for us. So let's look at that first section 
on honoring elders, read with me again verse 17. Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Remember that when we went through the qualifications of an overseer back in chapter 3, I said that the terms elder, pastor, overseer, and bishop are synonymous. They're different titles for the same position. So we're talking about who we commonly understand to be the pastor of the church. Now, a pastor uh, or a, uh, an eldership is going to be made up of paid elders and also lay elders. So we're targeting specifically those ones who, whose livelihood would be supported because he labors in preaching and teaching. And note that Paul calls this a ruling position. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now that doesn't mean that your pastor is a lord or a king and then you're all his subjects. The teachers of the synagogue were called rulers. In the account of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead, Mark 5.22 says that he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. When Jesus warned his disciples about the persecution they would face, he said, they will bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities. So this reference to ruling, it is synonymous with presiding. He gives attention to the teaching in the church and the care of its members to hear the teaching and then live accordingly. Remember that when we read back in chapter 3 that the elder is an overseer, we also read there that among the qualifications of an overseer, he must manage his own household well. Remember that? Because if he can't manage his own household, how can he manage the household of God? Well, the word in 1 Timothy 3, 4 through 5 that's translated manage is the same word that's translated here, rule. The word also occurs in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 13, where we read, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The word over is that same Greek word, proistomai. A few years ago, I was interviewing at another church. I don't remember what the context was that came up, but I was talking about, I, I made a comment about an elder who rules. And the pastor uh, or one of the other elders, rather, came back to me later, and he said, um, the other elders were kind of, they, they were, were a little uneasy about you using that position rule for a pastor. I said, why? It's right there in 1 Timothy 5.17. You shouldn't be afraid of it as if I'm talking about pastors coming in here, and he's the big CEO of this company, and he's going to tell you what to do, and you have to do it. That's not what we're discussing here but rather that this is a man who has devoted himself to the preaching and teaching of the church. That's simply what it means. As I had shared with you a couple of weeks ago when we were considering Timothy's age, the role of a pastor is a leadership position. The word of the Spirit instructs him to lead and the congregation to follow his lead so that as long as it is in keeping with God's word and in Scripture, we are in obedience to these things together. More to the point, a pastor is a servant leader. Just as Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And so should a pastor do 
as an imitator of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, Paul said, imitate me as I am of Christ. He is to be an example. He is a servant. And so the members of the church look up to him and do as they see him do. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 say, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. An elder who rules well is simply a pastor who fulfills his duty as an overseer of the church. What should we be looking for in a pastor who rules well? Let me give you five tasks that a pastor must regularly do as one who rules well. And I present these to you, given that this man is qualified for his role, having met all of those qualifications that we read back in chapter 3. So all of that is a given. What else must he do? What must he fulfill in his role as a pastor? Number one, he must have a great radio voice. I'm, I'm just kidding. No, that's not one of them. Number two, he must have a fantastic Bible podcast. No, that's, that's not it. I've taken these five things from the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy and Titus. So number one should sound familiar to you. Number one, he must watch himself. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul told Timothy, in his role as a pastor, keep a close watch on yourself. What does that mean? It means that he must be vigilant. He must be on the lookout for potential pitfalls and avoid them. He must keep away from temptation and regularly be in pursuit of Christ and his holiness. How many of you have flown on an airplane and when you sit in your seat, you don't immediately plug in your headphones and tune everything out, but you actually listen to the instructions that are given by the stewardess? Okay, one of you, one of you. I've listened to all of those instructions. If the cabin should lose pressure, what drops out of the ceiling? Oxygen masks. If you are a parent with children, who do you put the mask on first? Yourself. So some of you have been paying attention. Your children are thankful for that. The reason you put it on yourself first and not help your child first, that's, that's not being selfish. It's because you could black out before you get the mask on your child and then you're of no use to your child or even to yourself. You're not being selfish putting on your mask first. It is in the best interest of your child. And that is why a pastor must keep watch on himself. It is in the best interest of his congregation and the people that he ministers to, even unbelievers, that they see his life is consistent with his message, lest he bring the gospel and his teaching under reproach. I'm sure every one of us knows of a pastor or a minister of some kind who has made a shipwreck of their ministry because they fell into grievous personal sin. One of the most infamous in the history of American Christianity was televangelist Jimmy Swaggart. 
After being caught with a prostitute, Swaggart gave his tearful I have sinned speech on live television on February 21st, 1988. A couple decades ago, Colorado pastor Ted Haggard was caught with a male escort and was purchasing meth. In more recent years, it was discovered that renowned apologist Ravi Zacharias had been using his position in ministry to commit adultery all over the world. A little over five years ago, I had to do one of the hardest things I've ever done as a pastor. And I had to remove my friend and fellow elder from ministry because he was caught in adultery. And he was a friend I so loved and respected in his teaching that if he had come to me and said, Gabe, I'm ready to be a pastor, I would have stepped aside and helped him do it. But he could not keep a close watch on himself. A pastor is to be a holy man. He knows, kind of to borrow the phrase from John Owen, he knows how to kill sin before it kills him. He is devoted to studying the scriptures, letting the word of Christ dwell in him richly. He is a man of prayer, devoting himself to the will of the Lord, praying for his family for his church, for his community, and even that the gospel would go into all the world. He loves his wife and his children, and he serves his family in keeping himself from temptation. In Numbers 15.39 we read, Remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So a pastor understands his own weaknesses and he keeps a close watch on himself. Number two, he must watch the teaching. This is from the same verse, 1 Timothy 4, 6, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So a pastor who rules well does not allow himself to be led astray by wild ideas. He doesn't allow his mind to wander. He doesn't come up with new and fanciful thoughts from the text. He's not tossed to and fro by every shifting wind of doctrine. He does not aim to tickle the ears of his hearers with whatever he knows is going to satisfy them. Whatever is trendy or whatever is the latest buzz, he is devoted to God's word. He is an approved workman who has no need to be ashamed, for he rightly handles the word of truth, as we read in 2 Timothy 2.15. Now, not only does he keep a close watch on his own teaching, it is upon a pastor to protect the church from false teaching. And we've heard about that from the very start of this letter very first instruction that Paul had for Timothy. Don't let anyone teach any different doctrine. Titus 1.9 says that among the qualifications of a pastor, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. John Calvin said that a pastor must have two voices. He must have a voice that calls the sheep and he must also have a voice that fends off the wolves. In his devotion to the truth, a pastor who rules well 
helps to protect the people of his church from the lies of Satan, keeping a close watch on himself and on the teaching. Number three, he must preach the word. In 2 Timothy 4, 1-2, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the appearing of his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. A pastor must be devoted to the preaching of God's word. That is, in fact, his number one priority. As I had shared with you in the first sermon that we did in an introduction to 1 Timothy, as goes the pulpit, so goes the rest of the church. A church needs a man of God committed to preaching the full counsel of God. Everything else that church does, every ministry, every outreach, it is going to be shaped by what comes out of the pulpit. Too many people expect a pastor to be a motivational speaker or a self-help guru or a stand-up comedian or an entertainer or a politician, or a therapist, or a financial advisor, or a philosopher, or a fortune teller, or a best-selling author, or maybe he's supposed to be somebody famous that I can brag about. None of those things are required of a pastor to do his job well. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A pastor needs to know God's word, and he needs to know how to communicate it in such a way that his people understand it and they know how to apply it, that they may see Christ and grow in his likeness. A pastor knows how to point his people to Jesus. I remember hearing Steve Lawson say, the best, the best sermon that I could ever preach is not the one that people come up to me afterward and say to me, Pastor, that was such a fantastic sermon. You're so great. I loved your transitions, uh, your sayings, your examples were wonderful. Oh, that story you told, that was funny. I'm always going to remember that one. Lawson said, the best sermon I can preach is when a person comes up to me afterward and says, Pastor, thank you for showing me Jesus today. What an amazing and awesome God we serve. Now, this may sound like an odd thing to say, but a pastor doesn't need to preach heresy in order to be a heretic. All he has to do is withhold the truth, and the effect is the same. A pastor who doesn't preach the full counsel of God makes shipwreck of himself and of his ministry, but also of the lives of the people who listen to him. If a pastor is getting burned out on coming up with relevant sermon series, it's probably because he's too preoccupied with trying to keep people's attention instead of being occupied with preaching the word. A pastor must preach the word. And number four, 
he must do the work of an evangelist. In 2 Timothy 4, 5, Paul tells Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, which that ties back in with keeping a watch on himself and on the teaching. Endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Doing the work of an evangelist means that he must share the gospel. This doesn't mean that he must go door to door and share the gospel or he must do open air preaching, going to you know, a busy section of town with an open Bible and, and preaching it out as loud as he can so that more people can hear. These are all things that I've done before. But that's not necessarily what Paul means when he says do the work of an evangelist. A pastor who rules well must regularly go about the work of reaching the lost with the message of the gospel. There's no other way anyone is saved than by believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because the gospel is a message, it must be spoken. How many of you have ever heard the quote attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. You ever heard that before? There's a couple of problems with that quote. Boo. Okay, yeah. Caitlin already knows the problem with that quote. Number one, St. Francis never actually said it. There's no historical record that this ever came from St. Francis. We know that he wrote the song, All Creatures of Our God and King. But we cannot find any record that he ever said something like, preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. Number two, the quote is self-defeating because it is necessary to use words. So preach the gospel. Though what is implied by the statement is that you should just be able to, by your actions, share the gospel with others. It's more important that you live your life a certain way and let that be your gospel. And only when it becomes absolutely necessary, then you speak as a secondary measure. But your primary goal should just be to live it out. But that's, that's not how we share the gospel. The word gospel means what? What does that word mean? good news, which means it's a message that must be shared. How many of you have ever turned on the news and you turn on to watch somebody mime for you what's going on in the world and you have to guess by their charades what it is that's happening? Is that how you watch the news? You turn on the news and somebody tells you what's going on. And that's the way it is with the gospel of Christ. We actually have to communicate to people, you're a sinner. And if you remain in the state that you're in, you are under the wrath and judgment of God. But God has sent a savior so that whoever turns to him, puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven your sin and you won't perish but you will have everlasting life with God forever in glory. You have fellowship with God now and the promise of life forevermore with him in the very holy place where he dwells. A pastor who rules well must not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, Romans 1.16. He understands this world is full of people who are headed to hell and only by faith in Jesus Christ. Through the preaching of his gospel can a person be saved. So many modern preachers bristle at the idea of even, of even mentioning hell. They cower about it. 
But do you understand that if there is no hell, if the wrath of God is not here upon the sons of disobedience, there's no point in evangelizing anybody. Why would we need to evangelize anyone if no one's going to an eternal hell? But if a pastor understands the imminent danger that everyone faces if they do not repent and turn to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, he must do the work of an evangelist. And number five, he must care for the flock. The word pastor means shepherd. So like the good shepherd whom he is to imitate, a pastor cares for the flock that has been entrusted to his care. We've been reading about this as we've been going through 1 Timothy, but this is not just a dialogue between Paul and Timothy. Regularly, Paul has told Timothy, put these things before the brothers. That's in chapter 4, verse 6. Command and teach these things. Chapter 4, verse 11. Teach and urge these things. We'll hear that in chapter 6, verse 2. Remind them of these things. 2 Timothy 2, 14. Why does Paul keep saying this? Because Timothy is tasked with caring for the household of God, which means the people of God. In 1 Peter 1, or sorry, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, Peter said, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. A pastor who rules well is not inconvenienced by having to make house calls. He lets a man from his congregation cry on his shoulder because his unbelieving father had just passed away. He sits in the waiting room of a hospital praying with the family while a loved one is having a dangerous operation. He encourages and builds up the woman who feels beaten down and is falling into despair, reminding her of the hope of the gospel and that Christ is sufficient. He does not allow disputes in the church to grow or fester. But he sits down with those who are quarreling to resolve the matter that the grace of God may abound. He doesn't tolerate sin in the church, but he confronts it, rebuking and even disciplining where necessary. He's not easily frustrated or impatient when members of his congregation struggle to grasp deep theological truths, but he guides them as they grow in knowledge together. And he does all of this because he loves God and he loves his people. Now, this that we've looked at here, this is not an exhaustive list. We could probably find more that we could say of a pastor who rules well, but these these tasks are basic and regular. These are things that as a pastor, I would strive to do every week. He must keep a watch on himself and on the teaching. He must preach the word. 
He must do the work of an evangelist and he must care for the flock. Now, as Paul says this to Timothy, notice that it's, it's not worded, Timothy, be a good pastor worthy of double honor. But even in his role as a pastor in this church in Ephesus, he is to look for other men who are worthy of this honor. In fact, worthy of double honor, especially, or you might, other, uh, you might also understand that as specifically, specifically those who labor in preaching and teaching. So remember that we considered last week about honoring widows. There, the word honor was synonymous with financial support, and so we see it the same here in this regard of honoring elders. Paul made the same point with the Corinthians, but more specifically in supporting the apostles' ministry. This is in 1 Corinthians 9, 5-7. Paul says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas, who is Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living. Paul and Barnabas had decided not to take anybody's money or anyone's bread the way that he says it to the Thessalonians, but he wanted to set an example for them in somebody who works with their hands. And so he voluntarily decided that he wasn't going to be supported by the money that was being provided there in the Corinthian church. You support your elders with that money. Paul was an itinerant preacher, so he and Barnabas had their own businesses on the side and supported themselves that way while they were laboring in preaching and teaching. But in no way were the Corinthians to expect that of all ministers. So Paul goes on to tell them, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? But what does it mean that an elder who rules well is worthy of double honor? Now, we heard this in our confession this morning. It's, it's right from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So it means that he receives the honor and the respect due a man in his position, but it also means that he receives honor in terms of financial support. He has invested all of his time and energy in preaching and teaching and caring for the needs of the flock, that's his occupation. This is what he has given his life to. He doesn't have time to go out and get another job and then also have time to be able to shepherd his own family. So help him make a living that he may commit himself fully to this ministry. But in light of the caring for widows passage that we looked at last week, I would propose to you that a pastor is worthy of double honor means that he should be supported in his work in the ministry. And it also means that when he is old and he is not physically able to do that work anymore, the church continue to financially provide for him. He has shown himself worthy of being honored in the years of his ministry and even after. And so therefore, worthy of double honor. Now, Paul says this is even the command of God. Look at verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is in reference to muzzling an ox. The, the, the command is lifted straight from Deuteronomy 25.4. In other words, if you've put this animal to work, the animal must be allowed to eat some of the grain that even the animal itself has worked to harvest. And so if God cares for animals in this way, that he puts this in his law, then how much more would he care for those who have devoted themselves to the preaching and teaching of his word? Let him reap some reward. 
Now, the second statement, the laborer deserves his wages, that's not in the law anywhere, at least not worded exactly like that. There is a command in Leviticus 19.13, you shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man shall not remain with you overnight until morning. So indeed, God is instructed, pay a man what is due him. But this specific wording we find spoken by Jesus in Matthew 10.10 10 and in Luke 10.7. There it says, the laborer deserves his wages, exactly the way that Paul has worded it here. But he says, the scripture says. So this letter was written later in Paul's ministry. It would have been likely after his first imprisonment in Rome that he wrote this letter to Timothy. By this time, the gospels have been written and are circulated. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have been written by those men and they've been copied and the churches have copies of them. And so when Paul says, as the scripture says, the laborer deserves his wages, he is quoting the words of Christ that were written down in these gospels, which the churches had. Kind of a cool, you know, church history tidbit for you there. But here we have this instruction to honor elders, to provide for them, that they may labor, they may devote their lives to the preaching and teaching of the word, may very well give their lives, even in this work that they do in sharing the gospel. And so this is the statement on honoring your elders in verses 17 to 18. We're going to go through the next two sections a lot more quickly so number two is about admitting a charge against an elder. And this is picking up in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, that first instruction there in verse, uh, in verse uh, 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's not unusual. Because what does the law say about how a charge is to be administered against somebody? It must have the evidence of two or three witnesses. So really what Paul is just simply laying out here is you don't treat a pastor different than you would treat anybody else. If somebody comes up with a complaint against the pastor, you don't just automatically go, ah, that person, they, they got to be right. This guy's done wrong and he needs to be disciplined for it. There must be the evidence of two or three witnesses. Just as we would bring a charge against anybody, so it must be with regards to a pastor. So Paul is talking about equal weights and measures here, even in the way that you would deal with a charge that is brought against a pastor. There have been times before in my ministry that people have raised charges against me. In uh, the church that I served in in Kansas, I remember we gave like two hours to a young man one time. All of us elders, including myself, sitting down and listened to him just go over and over and over all this list of stuff that he had against me. And then when he got up and left, the elders looked at me and, and said, you got anything to say? And I said, uh, I don't know. I guess I got to wait for your judgment. And they, they both looked at each other and said, I didn't hear one charge in there that had any evidence behind it whatsoever. It was just a list of grievances. It's just things I don't like. But there's nothing in that list that we can say there are two or three witnesses that can evidence Gabe has been a problem here and he refuses to repent and therefore we have to discipline you and do something about it. And so the same as this would apply to anybody when we read the instructions regarding church discipline in Matthew chapter 18, that every charge must be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So it must apply to a pastor as well. Now that next verse, verse 
20, as for those who persist in sin, okay, they won't repent. They must be rebuked in the presence of all. It's not a secret what he's done and what he won't repent of. It's being brought before the church body so that the rest may stand in fear. I remember after I just told you a moment ago about an elder that I had to remove from ministry. We talked about it as officers of the church first before it was brought to the congregation. So it was talked about us uh, among us as elders and deacons. And as the charges about him were laid out in front of everybody who had not yet heard this yet, we all just sat there in silence. And it was the youngest deacon among us the one who had just been appointed deacon, I think the year before, who broke the silence and said, if it can happen to him, it can happen to any one of us. So you say this in the presence of all, that the rest may stand in fear, that we understand our weaknesses and our susceptibility to sin, that we may cling to Christ and flee from temptation. In these final instructions, verses 21 to 25, Paul says, keep these rules without prejudging. So look at verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect elders, or sorry, elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. What what a way that he starts that. It was the same way that Paul started his instruction on preach the word. It's the same way Peter started his instruction on shepherding the flock of God. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of elect angels. In other words, Paul is reminding Timothy not to threaten him, but to say, you're being watched. There is someone who knows your mind and heart. He knows all your actions, all your intentions. In the presence of God, keep these rules. But do it without prejudging. You don't administer a charge against a person just because you heard a rumor. You do nothing from partiality. Don't show favoritism to one person and then diminish another. And so these these other miscellaneous instructions that come about as we close out chapter 5. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't be hasty, and this goes back to uh, the instructions in the qualifications for overseers, that he must not be a recent convert. Remember that? So don't be hasty in laying on of hands. Don't automatically, oh, this guy's ready for ministry. We lay hands on him. We pray for him. Boom, he's ready to go into ministry. Be patient, test that man or even that woman to see if they are ready or do that task that is in front of them. And take no part in the sins of others. Be careful who your company is and keep yourself pure. Verse 23, at least in the English Standard Version, is a parenthetical reference. I don't know if it has parentheses in the translation that you're reading from. But no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. That's just for Timothy. You can drink a little wine if you want, but don't drink unto drunkenness, as the scripture says. And it could have been the case that Timothy was timid about touching any wine at all. It could have been that that was his 
his disposition. I don't want to drink anything that's going to cause somebody else to stumble. They think they see me drinking wine and going, oh, it's, it's okay for me to go out and get drunk. And so maybe Timothy was abstaining from that altogether. Maybe he was a teetotaler. And Paul is saying, drink a little wine. You need some help with your, fr- your frequent stomach ailments. It's okay. You're not doing anything wrong. And so going on in verses 24 and 25, to close out, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. There are sins that maybe we won't know about, but it will still lead a person to judgment. They will be exposed at the judgment. And so also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. A person who doesn't desire to have praise heaped upon him, but just desires to do the work of God to the glory of God, you may not even know about some of those good things that he does. But he knows that he does them not to receive the praise of men, but ultimately to the praise of God. And will receive the eternal reward when he enters heaven. And so you can even keep this in context with what we read here about elders, about pastors. There are probably many, many things that an elder or a pastor will do that nobody will know about, but he does that work because it's his responsibility to do it. And he does it not to receive praise from men, but to praise and glorify God. And so as a pastor may do this, may it be the same for you as well. You don't just do the Christian things you do because you want to receive some kind of recognition of it from other people. You do it because you're worshiping God. Romans 12.1 says, In view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices unto God, holy and acceptable to Him. And this is your spiritual act of worship. That is an instruction for everyone, pastor or layperson. So let us devote our whole selves unto the Lord, keeping ourselves pure, devoted to the word, devoted to prayer, growing in the image of Christ, that we may obtain the eternal reward that he has promised to all those who are in him. When we come to this table, we remember the sacrifice that was given for us so that our sins would be forgiven, so that we would have fellowship with God. Now, my friends, as Reformed Baptists, we don't practice this in a way as to assume that this body transform, the, the bread transforms into the literal flesh of Christ, that the cup transforms into the literal blood of Jesus. That's not what we believe. But Jesus is with us at this table. So that just as we have read here from Paul to Timothy, from Peter to pastors, that in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, we partake in these things, even as part of our spiritual act of worship. I would encourage you that if there is any sin in you that you think would cause you to partake of this table in an unworthy manner, that you abstain. And not just abstain because you want to be safe today, but you would even come and speak to one of us afterward and say, I do have this sin. What do I need to do about it? And talk to any of the persons that you've seen up here, whether myself, Alan, Chris, or the deacons, Jason, 
and uh, uh, or Jason, I'm sorry, Josh. There's, there's a Josh and there's a Josh who came up and did the offertory prayer, and there's a Dusty. You can talk with any one of us, and we would love to visit with you more about what it means to know the forgiveness of sins that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior. But otherwise, Jesus invites us to this table to partake. Come and eat and drink and do this in remembrance of me. So if you're a baptized believer, you don't have to be a member of this church, but you are welcome to come to this table that we may remember what Christ gave for us, that we may have fellowship with him. Let us take a moment here to pray, confess sins if you need to confess them to the Lord. And as we are in this moment of silence, if